This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special and fascinating guest. His name is Steve Romick. He is the managing partner at First Pacific Advisors, a shop in L.A. that runs about $26 billion in assets. He has also run the Crescent Fund since 1993. It's about $11 billion. Uh, and the numbers on that fund are really quite astonishing. One of the reasons I first wanted to start doing podcasts and interviews of asset managers was because of people like Steve Romick. You know, he's not on the cover of magazines. You don't see him on television all the time. But here's a guy running real money, a substantial amount of assets, with a fantastic long-term track record. And he is not a household name. I, I think the average, forget the average investor, the average professional probably doesn't know who Steve Romick is. And that's too bad because folks like this really allow you to learn an important lesson about how to manage risk, how to take advantage of opportunities, what you should be thinking about as a portfolio manager, as an investor, really just a fascinating guy with a a, a really interesting history. I found our conversation to be really intriguing, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, First Pacific Advisors, Steve Romick. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Steve Romick. He is the managing partner of First Pacific Advisors, a shop that runs over $26 billion in equity, fixed income, and alternative strategies. He was the Morningstar U.S. Allocation Fund Manager of the Year. He also manages the $11 billion FPA Crescent Fund, which he's been running since its inception in 1993. Steve Romick, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So let's go back to the early days of your career. You began as an analyst in 1985. Tell us what industry you were covering. I started out as a generalist. I actually started out as a generalist who knew nothing about everything. I was on my way to law school, and I met a gentleman through my father who decided that he wanted to bring somebody into his shop who didn't know anything because he, as he quoted it at the time, he was tired of unlearning MBAs. And he put me up uh, in his office, pushed a desk right up next to his, and said, you're going to see what, you know, how this works and what we do. And he does every time we called a company, he uh, had me on the phone with him. And I learned, you know, early on. But the industry that I focused on to the greatest degree in, the, in my earliest years, in the mid-'80s, you know, where it was the um, bank and thrift industry when there were, you know, almost triple the number of banks and thrifts in the United States. And there was a massive consolidation trend that, that he identified that was likely to occur, which, of course, did occur. And he had me you know, spending a lot of time you know, analyzing these companies and, and inputting you know, hundreds of, of banks and thrifts into uh, DBase, something we don't really use today anymore, and spent a lot of time analyzing those businesses. And then I just took it from there and, and continued you know, that breadth and spent a lot of time looking you know, uh, at, at different parts of the capital structure as well. And to stress that and stress that in addition. Huh. So you mentioned DBase. How different were the tools that you used in the 1980s and the techniques that were mainstays in financial analysis then versus today? How radically has the world of analytical research changed? Well, I think that the, the I don't know that the process is, is any different, but the tools that you can use to, to get the information that one needs to make a robust decision, you know, are, are better. I mean, it's just, it's just easier, you know, to get that information, which makes the world, you know, candidly more competitive today than it was, was back then. Not only is there more money sloshing around the system, system, not only are there more people doing it, you know, but they can get that information a lot more easily. I mean, back then I had to, and get on the phone and and call a company and call them for local information to get the the, the phone number of the bank's headquarters. 
you know, or whatever company's headquarters it was and try and get in contact with investor relations if there even was an investor relations department. More often than not, I was just trying to get in the hold of the somebody in the finance department to get them to send me an annual report and to to seek information, you know, on, on, on the competition, to seek information as it relates to industry data, you know, uh, it was just all much, much harder to, to come by. It, it required a lot more grunt work just to get that information. Now that information is, is available at your fingertips uh, you know, on the web. And in addition, you, you have so many you know, great resources that exist today for people looking at businesses. The world's become much smaller. Uh, you have uh, podcasts like this. You've got the Value Investors Club, Vic, et cetera. Hmm. Interesting. So you're working as an analyst covering everything generally. How did you decide to become a portfolio manager, and what was that transition like? I think that's a great question, because I think that everybody who is reasonably good at this and is confident in their capabilities, at some point they want to to reach out and and touch the money themselves, as opposed to having somebody else make that an investment decision. So it started out with my, my personal account inside of the firm and investing that. And, you know, finding some, you know, failure early to realize, you know, uh, my mis- you know what, what not to do. And then as I got better over time, I thought that that uh, it was might be something that I, I want to do in terms of managing an entire portfolio as it began to really develop a, a philosophy as to how I'd like to, to manage money. And I was very fortunate to have a, a mentor who helped you know, push me in that direction and became one of my, my early investors. Hmm. Really intriguing. So you founded Crescent Management in 1990. How did you launch this business? How did you get it off the ground? Where did you find clients? And what did the business look like in those early years? 1990, when we started this, it was I had, I had a partner at the time who both of us had worked for our mentor. His name was uh, James Nathan, goes by Jeff Nathan, and he he you know it was basically arranged marriage where where he decided that uh, we'd be better off you know building our own business. It, it was an opportunity for us. He allowed us to do that while we remained as you know, consultative analyst for want of a better description with his firm. So he could, you know, have his cake and, and eat it too, if you will. So it was, it was mutually beneficial. And the early clients really came from his relationships. He could put us in business. And I owe that, you know, all to him. We, we didn't really have, we didn't have, I mean, at that point in time, we, you know, we launched with, you know, maybe it was, I have to go back and think about how many millions it was, but maybe it was $10 million in total between mm-hmm. separate accounts and, and, and the mutual fund, and it gradually grew from there. When you launched, was it all equity? Was it equity fixed income, or was it unconstrained and, you know, including alternatives and non-publicly traded options? It was, it was unconstrained within the public security market. So that did not include anything that was in the private sector, whether it be private credit or the odd uh, private equity investment that we, we might make today. Uh, and, and, to, and today we continue to be largely public security investors. But philosophically, at that point in time, I liked the idea that I was able to uh, invest money in a way that could deliver high-risk adjusted returns, or I believe they could deliver high-risk adjusted returns to my client base by investing across the capital structure. We had come out of the, you know, the, uh, I was coming out of a recession uh, at that point in time, and then the Drexel Burnham blow up, and there was lots of opportunity in junk bond land, and I learned that I could get a rate of return in the debt markets that was as good as the equity markets with 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 more downside protection, and I could use that as a tool in my portfolio. And if I could do that, I felt that our my clients would would benefit because the portfolio could ge- deliver higher risk adjusted returns. I mean, volatility is a is a measure of risk is I think a bit silly because it's just things can move around a lot. And the temperature outside today in Los Angeles does not, doesn't reflect what the temperature might be tomorrow. It's just going to move around. 
So when it comes to investing, though, in the average person, this goes for many professional investors, I think if volatility does weigh on, on them, and it does precipitate action. Stocks go up a lot. They need to get in. The stocks go down a lot. People will panic out. And this is, I'm not making a universal statement, but it's, it's all too often true. And I found in, in dealing with individual clients, it, it, very, it was very much true. And I felt that managing a product that could mute that, which, which was not the goal, but it was just the byproduct of my, of my process, was, was something that, that could be a, a reasonable business. And clearly it became a reasonable business. When did Crescent become part of FPA and what was that transition like? That was in 1996, and it, the transition was, was actually a, a very difficult transition for, for tragic reasons. I, uh, my partner and I uh, split up. He took separate accounts, and I took you know, the mutual fund, and we, I brought the assets over to for specific advisors. I realized that I didn't want to deal with the back office. I didn't want to deal with marketing. I just wanted to focus on investing. And all the, the nuts and bolts of, of the business side of things, I wanted to leave to a, an organization that could have my back, if you will, and, and, and provide that peace of mind that I can just you know, focus. And so I joined for specific advisors. And I was friends with, I, there were these, this investment group that I was part of at the time through my, again, my mentor that were guys who were you know, older guys, I mean, younger than I am now, who would sit down and, and talk about businesses, investments uh, every every couple months, and they get together for a dinner, and you'd have to bring your best idea, and you'd, and you'd chat about it, and they, they let me come and be a fly on the wall, because I clearly had nothing to add at that point in time. And one of those gentlemen was Bob Rodriguez, who was a portfolio manager at First Pacific Advisors at the time, and we became friendly. And I sought out, sought him out, and others regularly to, to you know, bounce ideas off of, and uh, compare notes and different businesses. And and Bob knew I was looking to find a home, and he was kind enough to to allow me to enter discussions with First Pacific Advisors, which was run by George Michaelis at the time, who was a well-known investor. You know, featured in John Train's book, The Money Masters, the, the volume one. And I spent a lot of time with, with George, who I knew peripherally through mutual friends. And it just seemed like a very, very good fit. And I came into FPA in 96, mid-96, and, and or early 96, and 10 days after I joined, George Michaelis was scheduled to have dinner at my home that night and went cycling first and... and uh, had a bike accident and died. That is tragic and, and really just robbed you of the ability to work with him for all those future years. Uh, so so it really kind of shows you just how random life can be and, and it ties into the question I was about to ask you, which is you've had one of the longest tenures in the mutual fund business You've been running the FPA Crescent Fund since its 1993 inception. What is the secret to this longevity? Well, I think you you have to enjoy what you do first and foremost, and 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 I do. I mean, it, if I people ask me when I'm going to retire, and I, I have no plans to do that because I enjoy coming to the office every day. I enjoy reading about businesses. I enjoy learning. I mean, this is a, you're in a constant state of learning. The world is so different today than it was then. The company and industries, you know, have, have, have evolved and it forces you to, to continue to, to study. And you, you, you never perfect this. It's, it's a, it's a constant process of self-improvement. And i as I look around me, I think that's what keeps me young. And so I've really have no intention of, of stopping this anytime soon. So that's, the, I think, the first you know, key to that longevity. And I think second is just that we happen to create a product that, that for better or worse, is different than the typical product. I mean, sometimes we will look like the typical mutual fund. We will, we will look very ordinary at, you know, for sometimes longer periods of time because there isn't a lot of opportunity in, in say, the, in the debt markets, as there hasn't been over the last number of years because we've not been interested in, in buying high-yield bond without the, without the high part of the yield because there hasn't been much yield. 
So we end up with just more inequities than we have, have historically. And so, but we do have that opportunity and that flexibility to, to operate with great breadth, whether or not we, we take advantage of it at, at all points in time or not, it's, that opportunity does exist. I think that makes us a little bit different than, than the typical one, and it doesn't make us the right investment for, for everyone, but we, we've kind of come in each day, myself and my, my partners in the fund now, because one of the things that's also allowed me this longevity is to, to have terrific partners in Brian Selmo and Mark Landecker, who are uh, wonderful partners and wonderful analysts and wonderful portfolio managers and, and thoughtful and kind people with lots of integrity who make it fun to, to come in each day. And so having that kind of support around you, along with our analyst team and support of, of, uh, of the organization of First Pacific Advisors, makes it, you know, makes it, uh, makes it enjoyable. Let's talk a little bit about what it was like managing all those assets in the midst of the worst pandemic in a century. Um, heading into the end of 2019, you were running more than a third cash in the funds. What was the thinking then? Well, we've always managed a, a, a fair amount of cash in the, in the, in the portfolio. and But that seems taking, pretty high. 36% it, is a it, lot. It, it is. It was certainly above average. And it wasn't that we, we identified the a recession that was about to come as a result of a of a pandemic and the world would, would literally stop in many in many industries. But it was really, you know, more a, a function of, you know, cash being a byproduct of our investment products process. If we find an investment we like, we buy it. If not, cash ends up as residual. So, and we were more comfortable owning more cash in the past than we are today because, hey, at a point in time, cash yielded 5% back in the, in the early 2000s and mid, you know, mid-2000s. And we have more concern today, B, that, that inflation might be prospectively higher given the amount of debt that's been issued and the amount of paper money that's been printed, and cash would be worth a lot less in an inflationary environment. So when we came into this recession and, 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 and into the pandemic at, in early you know, 2000, we had that cash again just as a byproduct of that and we thought we were actually more protected with the cash we were but the invested part of the portfolio uh you know was you know was candidly hit pretty hard by the by the pandemic yeah down 34 uh, percent will do that right yeah the but it was it was it was some of the businesses that we owned were were people you know throughout you know for dead for for a period of time we own companies like like AIG that started the year at around 50, and at the end of 2019 going into 20, it peaked to you know mid 50s, and and intraday in the in the third fourth week of March 2020, it was trading down at you know under 17 dollars a share, uh, with book value you know being up you know closer to where the price was at the beginning of the year, so huge huge discount, and people believed that you know the the company was clearly on its way out, uh, you know, of existence. And, you know, we didn't believe that. And, you know, we had took the opportunity to, to increase our position, but it was still, I mean, it admittedly dis- discomforting at that point in time, not only, you know, for us, because who likes to see their, their stocks drop up and drop that much, but uh, certainly for our, for our investor base. But at the end of the day, we, we understood that, that many of these businesses we own, it was just, it was just a, a blip. It was just a price at a point in time with fear, you know, hitting, you know, hitting the market. And, and it wasn't the, that these businesses weren't going to do well once we got through to the other side. I mean, businesses like AIG, you know, are going to be fine. It's, it's, it's businesses like, like Marriott, whose business has truly stopped, and we were buying, you know, Marriott you know, as, as the stock was coming down. And, you know, you buy a stock at 80, and then it goes, you know, it goes into the 60s. You know, it, it's not, the, again, the most comfortable you know, thing to watch happen. But we were very confident that, that as we got through the pandemic, people once again would, would travel. They would get on airplanes. They would go to hotels. And, and a, a company like Marriott, you know, that is, you know, more asset light than, you know, some other hotel businesses would, would perform, you know, quite well. So, you know, buying something at, at 60, I'm sorry, at 80, you know, as it, as it dropped down, as it dropped down, um, you know, another, you know, 25, you know, 20, 25% from there, you know, again, as I said, was discomforting, but at the same time, you look where it is today, where it's 140 plus, it, we clearly weren't wrong, but 
it, it took a mark at, at that point in time as it took a lot of those businesses down down with it. So we took advantage you know, of the opportunities at that point in time and, in, and increased our invested exposure by about you know, 10 percentage points and pulled down some of that cash you were referencing. So I don't want listeners to think this is hindsight bias or, you know, after the fact, re- reinventing history. March 20th, 2020, there was an article in the New York Times by Jeff Somer. Uh, and remember, this is deep into the collapse about a week before the market bottomed. And he described getting uh, a note from you saying you had begun to start buying stocks and felt that if even if markets fell further, you were going to continue to buy because you thought things had suddenly become very attractive price-wise. And that you said you were acting rationally and not bravely, um, and you're looking out five to seven years. Tell us a little bit about the reaction to that Times column about you buying right into the teeth of the collapse. Reaction from whom, Barry? From whoever, from investors, from, you know, any, I found any time I see someone go against the, the dominant trend, stake out a contrarian point, the general pushback is, ranges from this guy's an idiot to this guy's crazy. Were, were you getting sort of, hey, what are you doing from clients? Or... <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got the spectrum. We got both. both. Right. I mean, <laughs> but you've been doing this long enough, and your track record is good enough that one would hope longstanding clients would say, I don't know, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because you've been right before. What, what, was, the, what was the pushback like? The the pushback from some people was your your portfolio took a mark. We didn't expect it to take a mark uh, like it has, and so we're going to go and uh, give our money to somebody else. Uh, that was pushback from some. On the other hand, we had those investors who increased their their capital commitment, you know, to us, and and decided that uh, what we were doing was the right thing because they did buy into the argument you just made that, hey, we, these guys have been doing this a long time. They've lived through various cycles. They lived through the Internet bubble. They lived through the, the you know, junk bond, you know, blow-ups in, 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 in the early 2000s when, when the world comes were there and were able to take advantage. They lived through the great financial crisis, and, and they, these guys know what they're doing. I'd rather them do it than, than you know, somebody else. And so we did have, you know, fortunately, those people as well. Uh, on the other hand, there was more of the former, admittedly, than the latter. You know, people tend to vote with their feet, and this goes back to that volatility argument that people get, you know, get a little panicked at these points in time. And we just try to, you know, be thoughtful and, and act rationally. And at the end of the day, if we do the right thing, the business will take care of itself, whether we'll be, you know, whether we're smaller or we're larger. It's not going to change what we do every day when we come in here. It's not going to, and it's not going to change our lives. So it's very important for us to always be mindful of what the world will look like in five to seven years, you know, down the road. And make sure that we we have analyzed the businesses that we own or the assets we're buying, the bonds that we're buying, you know, well, uh, such that we have invested with some kind of margin of safety. And we've tried to anticipate, you know, downside. I mean, downside, not just the mark-to-markets that might occur, which are far less important, but, but really considering what the absolute downside is. What is that, you know, what could really happen that could create a permanent impairment of capital? Hmm. So before we get granular and really dive into what you were buying, I want to ask you, what made you realize that the sell-off in 2020 was a short-term sell-off and not the start of a more serious longer-term bear market? Was it valuation? Was it a variety of factors? You obviously had the right answer. What was the thinking behind it? Oh, I didn't know. I mean, I mean, you know, just full disclosure, we had no idea it was going to be short or long. <laughs> I mean, we. I came. That article you're referencing in the New York Times was was, you know, as you stated, you know, it's like we're thinking about where the world's going to be down the road five to seven years. I didn't know how long this was going to last, but if I invest trying to anticipate what's going to happen in the next, you know, few months, six months, year, whatever the case may be, it just it's going to take my eye, our, you know, my eye off the ball, our team's eye off the ball, and, and not allow us to 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 buy things we otherwise might buy. We'd always find some reason that, that it might be a little bit cheaper. Right. So, so let me get specific then. Um, since you were thinking five to seven years, what did you accumulate at the end of that first quarter and the beginning of the second quarter? What, what specific sectors or stocks? 
you know, we bought a number of businesses in the in the travel industry, and including you know Bookings.com and Marriott. We bought businesses that were were impacted, you know, by you know you know directly you know by COVID. Uh, we added to you know, some of our financial you know services businesses. You know, you know, AIG gave us an example uh, that we felt that would certainly get through, you know, to the other side, and we added, you know, businesses that that uh, you know last year that were where people were capitulating because the consumer is going to be weak. Businesses like like Richemont, um, you know, for example, and then we we also took advantage of other businesses that that were less cyclical uh, that that had the the uh, Opportunity to to perform well regardless of what you know what the economy you know was doing, but but it, we're just uh, we're we're being negatively impacted you know by the market when they were throwing the you know baby out with the bathwater as well. So we own in the portfolio, and, and there are positions that that uh, you know grew within the portfolio uh, while we were when the market was going down. You know, you know companies like Facebook and Alphabet, et cetera. And I know you like to run with a little bit of cash in the portfolio. Did you ever fully deploy that capital? Did you become fully invested? No, we 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 didn't. We put the cap. We, we took ten points of the you know the capital and put that to work, and and the market rallied you know from there. And uh, we didn't um, you know put it all to work. You know, in hindsight, obviously, you know, you, one wishes they had, but you know, we didn't know how long that opportunity was going to exist. We wanted to make sure we continue to have the ability to buy down. No doubt about it. What else were you doing to manage the portfolio through the course of the pandemic? Meaning, how were you approaching dealing with clients, dealing with buying opportunities, considering uh, risk? How did you, the pandemic affect the way you thought about running the fund? We had lots of conversations, you know, about this, and, and, and you know, internally amongst my partners, and probably the most grounded of of the three of us. I would give a hat tip to my partner, Mark Landecker, who really was the most centered of us. Because I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't disconcerting watching, you know, these, uh, the stock prices drop, you know, as I did, even after having lived through, you know, multiple, multiple downturns. And we, they left, you know, more of the speaking to clients, you know, to me, uh, which, you know, uh, I had the the history with them and allowed them to 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 a greater degree focus more on 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 the portfolio and and not have the static from from having clients whisper in your ear you know your you know the portfolio is going down I'm scared you know what are we going to do what are you going to do what am I going to do it 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 insulates them from hearing the the visceral reactions of the investors, and so I I took more of that on the, on the front line, and because you have to to be a good investor, you really do have to have as we discussed that longer term focus and and find ways to to minimize the static in your life, and so that's that's how we operated you know together you know the three of us. Really intriguing. So given the big run-up uh, from, from before the drop, from February, we're up about 17%. From the Nader, we're up about 75%. Are you still as fully invested as you were last year? How are you looking at the markets today after, after this recovery? Well, there's no question that, that things have gotten pricier. But every time you put capital to work, you have to ask yourself or even maintain your exposure, you know, what's likely to happen over the next five to seven years to these businesses and these assets that we own. And our thought process is continues to always be focused on, on looking out down the road. And if one starts with that, yeah, we, ha- we we you then have to end with what is the alternative to that's where we can end up concluding what if you, you bonds don't offer much of an alternative and you're not getting any kind of you know yield there we kind of think of that as more as return free risk uh, on the the high yield part of the market or the investment grade part of the corporate debt market just isn't isn't attractive and you know, we wish it was. We took a, we put a little bit of capital to work, you know, in the space last year, but the opportunity didn't exist, you know, for very long. And and so much of that corporate debt is not only lower yielding, but it's also also um, relatively weak covenants to to a lot of that debt. So more of the leverage you know, tilts towards the 
to the borrower and away from the lender. And so we don't, we look today and that same situation exists. The yields are lower still. And it begs the question, and I think it's a fair question, why would you be as invested? We're slightly less invested in fairness, but that's more noise in the portfolio you know, than we were you know, last year this time. But why do we stay invested? Because again, the alternative isn't great. And we think that we're going to get good rates of return over the next number of years you know, from this portfolio of assets that we own. That doesn't mean that they're not going to, stocks aren't going to trade down in the interim. They very well might. But when we look at the way the government has, has, has printed, you know, money, governments or sovereigns have printed money, and, you know, and, and as I pointed out earlier, just the amount of debt that's been created, we just think that, you know, you could be, you could tilt towards an environment where it's more inflationary and rates could remain lower for longer because the, the, government imperative is to keep them as low as, as debt, uh, interest expense as low as it can be, which means keeping rates as low as possible. At any point in time, you know, the system can, you know, governments can lose control of it. But when we consider what the alternatives are, stocks still make more sense. Now, we are finding more opportunities outside the United States. And we think that there's better opportunity in businesses that are domiciled uh, you know, on foreign, on foreign shores. And so our portfolio of equities has tilted in the last couple of years more overseas than it has been or has ever been historically. You know, position sizes have about doubled from a few years back for, for that which we've owned outside the U.S. And, and now 40-plus percent of our portfolio is domiciled elsewhere. Let's talk a little bit about that Crescent Fund. It has been ranked as the best risk-adjusted returns of all allocation mutual funds with at least a billion dollars in assets under management uh, among those managed by the same manager since inception, uh, which I would imagine is a fairly exclusive club. Uh, Are you familiar at all with who else is similarly situated to you in terms of running a fund since inception and, and actually running a billion or more dollars? Uh, I'm, I'm not, actually. I don't really pay a lot of attention to, to that. So, so I want to go over the fund's objectives, which is to, quote, generate equity-like returns over the long term while taking less risk than the market and avoiding permanent impairment of capital. Hey, everybody wants to do this. You're one of the few who actually have. Tell us how you managed to accomplish that. Well, we invest across the capital structure with this goal of delivering attractive risk-adjusted returns. So we'll own stocks, stressed and distressed corporate bonds, and private credit, occasional preferred stock, etc. When it comes to stocks, we'll own both the more commercial and the evergreens. That is, the you know the commercial call them the dollar bills turned into discounts, and those right. companies whose businesses should, you know on the other hand that are more evergreen that whose businesses should be solidly better a decade from now. It's really a function of price and risk and reward that will dictate which direction we go uh, for, for these evergreens versus these more commercial opportunities. But we, we try every day to try to know the better businesses in the world and own them. Should they ever trade down for one reason or another, we'll be there to, to pick them up. And what we also own these lesser quality but still growing businesses if their stock prices offer attractive upside relative to the downside. And then, you know, we have our debt investments where we – all we care about is getting our principal back in maturity, but you know, also generating equity return along the way. That really speaks, you know, you know to more to our philosophy, and then and then our, our process is guided by by thoughtful research of the underlying opportunity, as we as we really try to ascertain the the value of the business or the asset, and that's guided by a lot of reading, many conversations with management competitors, industry experts, and so forth. And then, you know, we'll go about and build our, our financial models. And our models don't, you know, suggest what, you know, what might happen in the coming quarter or even in 2022. But over the next few years, we want to have a view as to what this business might look like in a low base and high case. And we want the investment in that business, that equity, to, to, that we're going to be buying in that business, to be attractive in the base case. And have that upside optionality on the in the high case, and and not you know get to hurt too badly in the low case. So we really try and create these 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 boundaries, these governors, as we look at uh, each of the individual investments in the portfolio. 
So I'm trying to figure out how to describe your style of investing, and it's it's pretty challenging. I, I'm looking at some of the holdings in, in your top 10. So you have Alphabet and Facebook on the one hand, but on the other hand, you mentioned AIG and Citigroup. Is this value? Is this growth? It, it's pretty hard to put you into a style box. Yeah, I think that there's a a problem with style boxes because they, we don't make a great distinction between growth and value. Show me the growth investor that argues what they bought isn't a value. But, but then also you can just take a company that trades, call it 40 times earnings, but if it's growing 30% a year for the next five years, at the end of that five-year period, it's what trading 10, 11 times earnings or thereabout. So to us, value investing is just to invest with, a, with an appropriate margin of safety, buying a business or an asset at a discount. In the past, that, that margin of safety might have meant protection you know, came from the balance sheet in the, more, in the most traditional Graham and Dottian you know, kind of definition, you know, buying below book value, below net networking capital. You know, the business might have non-earning assets that could be monetized, et cetera. Today, it, it, you know, for us, it more likely means the protection you know, you know, that, that has to come from the, the quality of the business. You can get sucked into what you think is a margin of safety, because the, you've got these, you know, what appears to be a strong book value, you've got, you know, hidden assets. But if the business isn't good, at the end of the day, the, you're, you're, you're probably going to have a, a challenge. I mean, take Sears as an example. There are a lot of value investors who owned it, believing that management could turn the business around. But if not, they were protected by lots of great real estate as well as some powerful brands like Kenmore and Craftsman. However, as we now know, management wasn't successful, and much of their great asset base was mortgaged or sold off with that capital was then reinvested back in the business. And then, you know, when it's a time that it came to a point in time where people realized ex post that, that they, were, they were burning the uh, timber from the house. So to us, you know, traditional value investments, you know, are, are you know, often mediocre cyclical businesses that were temporarily out of favor and offered investors the opportunity to return to more normal earnings. But many of those businesses have been disrupted by new technologies and, and didn't offer the margin of safety they once did. So we're very mindful of whatever we own. It really does have to be growing. It doesn't have to have, have go-go growth. We own a couple of cement companies that, that are, have global franchises that, that we think cement's going to be here for you know, a long, long time. Now, they're not you know, go-go growth businesses, certainly, but you know those are businesses that we think that that offer attractive risk adjusted returns over the, you know, over the next number of years and you mentioned you know google and facebook but even those investments were initiated at points in time when there was bad news surrounding them google back in 2011 when there was fear that their advertising you know business was going to be impaired which is bulk of the revenues was being impaired because of a recession as the world was beginning to unwind as 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 what was happening in Cyprus was infecting you know Europe and Greece you know the rest of Europe uh, and um, the stock traded and the stock traded down Facebook traded down a, a few years back because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and people were worried about about it its business uh, prospects and it's not allowed us you know entry into into two very good you know, uh, businesses that we've owned ever since. So you mentioned you buy some non-public distressed debt. Are you purchasing anything on the non-public side of equities? So, yes, we do. We do own um, some privates in the portfolio, but they're very small uh, because we're a public fund and we're responsible for returning capital to our investors when they, when they want it back. But on occasion, we make investments in certain private investments and uh, in opportunities. Um, you know, Epic Games is, is an example. Uh, we also have various private credit uh, in, in the positions in the portfolio that we've made over the years. In the last decade, we've put, you know, $800 million or so out, you know, in, uh, in private credit that have delivered returns of, you know, give or take, you know, 14% to the fund. And these are, you know, secured first lien asset-based loans that, uh, you know, are something different that not a lot of mutual funds do. Again, I don't want to suggest that this is that the, the, these are the engines of the portfolio. These are our investments that that end up on the periphery again because of, the, of their illiquid nature and and the fact that we are a public fund. So, last question about the funds. You're located in Los Angeles. A lot of what you're covering seems to originate on the East Coast in New York or in Silicon Valley. How does being located in L.A. affect 
your worldview? I've never really thought about L.A. affecting my, my worldview until you just asked that question. I, I do think that, you know, just in general, the world has gotten has gotten smaller because of, of the information that's available at your fingertips, you know, across the Internet. Uh, and that certainly has made it easier. But living in Los Angeles, I don't know, has affected my my worldview to to any great degree. I don't know if I would think differently if I was, you know, living in in Chicago or New York. I haven't really huh. thought about it, Barry. To be honest, of how it's, my view has been impacted by living here. Hey, that's a fair answer. I, I'm just trying to get a sense of of your philosophy and and how where you're situated might somehow filter into it. So we talked a little bit about uh, fixed income and especially in the high yield world where. You're taking a lot of risk for almost no reward. What do you think about the state of inflation here? That seems to have been a giant topic the past couple of months. Does this affect the way you invest? I notice you guys don't really make much of a inflation forecast. What's the impact of, of inflation on your thought process? Well, we think that with the way the stewards of of, of, of capital at the sovereign level have been acting in the last number of years, really, to a great degree, since the great financial crisis, uh, there is this financial alchemy that's going on that people hope that, that, that the academics have it all figured out, that they're going to get engineer this soft landing and, and, and be able to control you know, the inflation in, in a way that, uh, and, and drive growth at the same time that is going to all end perfectly and it things tend not to be quite you know so perfect out there in the world and and the we've learned to expect the unexpected and we don't know what is going to happen we don't know whether there'll be inflation or how much inflation there might end up being we think that there's reasonable prospects of it you know certainly but you know might there be a deflationary path to inflation that could be the way we get there where the where the knee-jerk response is to continue to to you know print more borrow more and then stimulate stimulate uh, with a with a wanton disregard for for the future ramifications of of what it might mean to fiat currencies you know or 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 the economies or or inflation down the road but looking for that near-term bump as these policymakers and, and academics are, are really thinking about what's happening right now as they, as they seek to be reelected or reappointed. So we don't know what's going to happen, but we create a range of outcomes, and we think that you know, as we look at them, it's more appropriate to be more invested than not if you're looking out where the world's going to be, you know, five, ten years hence. Hmm. So that raises really interesting issue, uh, you referred to the response from the fiscal response from governments and the monetary response from central banks. Are are they in the process of changing what bear markets are going to look like going forward? And what I mean by that is, have investors learned to anticipate fiscal and monetary stimulus? I think the world is certainly trying to do that. We here at First Pacific Advisors know we can't anticipate. We just try and create a portfolio that's robust to multiple outcomes, that doesn't go too hard one direction or another, believing that you know, that we really have the capability of identifying what the macro environment will look, look like prospectively. There's just way too many moving parts. I mean, if you put me in a room with, the, with, with John Maynard Keynes, I'm going to you know, come out of a you know, Keynesian economist, right? I'm going to be a believer. You know, same with, you know, put me in there with a monetarist, a supply side, or, a, you know, who, or whatever. It's just there's, these guys have all the arguments down, and, and I'm just not you know, well-versed enough, and I, I don't believe that, that anybody really has that capability. And in fact, if you were to go back and, and look at, at the projections made by economists, for just the coming year, for what GDP was going to be, right. they're, they're rarely right. Somebody gets it right, but nobody's right consistently, and sometimes they're, they're wildly wrong. And you look at, 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 at people like Alan Greenspan, who didn't think that we were you know, in a recession in the early, you know, in the early part of the, the O's. 
you know, or, or Bernanke, this, they, they didn't expect the great financial crisis. These things weren't anticipated. And so we don't hang our hat on, on listening to them or trying to, to anticipate what might be. A lot of things might be. More things might be than will be. And so we just try and put our heads down and, and believe that, that, you know what, it, you know, down the road that, you know, Google's still going to be a good business. And we're not paying, even today at current prices, the, you know, if you adjust for the cash, you, you, you adjust for their non-earning assets, their moonshots, and, and the, the stock is not so horribly expensive. It certainly isn't as cheap as it was on an adjusted basis. When we bought it back in 11, it was in the early, you know, early uh, uh, low, rather, uh, teens multiple, you know, adjusted earnings. But these are companies we're comfortable owning, you know, through this. So... That's kind of interesting. What what other investment opportunities today are you excited about? You mentioned uh, overseas. Is that ex-U.S. developed? Is that emerging markets? What is catching your eye in the present environment? You know, we we it's it's more it's more developed economies. Although there's some emerging markets in it. It's not any one company or one industry. You know, specifically, there's just. Um, there's a host of different, you know, businesses that we own, you know, outside the United States. There's some businesses that we own, you know, inside the U.S. that are less economically sensitive as well. That that uh, that make their way into in, into the portfolio. That are again, I'll give you an example of a more commercial opportunity we've owned for, you know, since last year, um, and it didn't go down because of the pandemic. It went down for for uh, idiosyncratic reasons. It's a uh, I don't want. And anytime I, I mention idea, I don't want it to suggest this is like our favorite idea or the only idea. This is just to be meant to be emblematic of of of, of philosophy and process. But we own, you know, First Energy, which is a a pure play regulated transmission distribution utility with one of the largest networks in the U.S. I mean, six million customers across five states. You know, starting in Ohio and kind of moving east towards the Mid Atlantic. Now, its core utility business is better than average. Which mean, which to us, you know, can be determined as a higher than average, you know, ROE. It's got um, more regulated transmission distribution assets rather than the more risky business of non-regulated independent power production. And for the most part, they're in regulatorily friendly states with lower than average competition. So we also, you know, look at like the utility industry just just as an idea just as a as a construct because we think there should be underlying demand for increased transmission and grid modernization you know over the next number of years so but you know, the utility industry is is you know the index trades at about 19 20 times earnings you know thereabouts but this company you know last year you know have got hit by some bad news in Q1 of 2020 you know, First Energy got caught up in a bribery scandal that alleged, you know, illegal campaign contributions, totaling around $60 million to the former Ohio Speaker of the House, in the hopes of passing a bill that provided some, you know, subsidies for a nuclear business, you know, that isn't, that they don't even own anymore. And as a result, you know, you know, what, you know, how the government might, uh, or in the regulators might uh, come at them, it caused the stock to drop by almost half from the February 2020 high. And that cleaved off about $13 billion of market value. And if you were to adjust it for the decline in the utility index, because that had gone down, you know, at that point, about 8% as well, uh, along with the, the uh, um, you know, coming down with the pandemic, that would you know, adjust it basically means about 10 to $11 billion of value, you know, was taken out, adjusted for the decline in those utility indices. And so we, our work was really centered on, on two things, like one, how good is the business, and two, you know, what, what might the penalties be? And so we, the work that we did you know, on the business you know, in com- conversations with competitors, industry experts, and utility analysts gave us a comfort level that the business was as advertised as good as we thought it was. And then with respect to the, the fine that was likely to occur, we felt it would end up being manageable. So there were federal sentencing guidelines that are fairly, you know, formal, formulaic. And so we used history as a precedent and looking at lots of, of different uh, of fines that have been paid in the past. And there's a base case fine, and then there's a, a culpability multiple that gets attached to that. So we and did, as we triangulated these, these other fines and, and, and the multiple, we kind of looked at that 
maybe the fines end up being someplace 150 to 400 million dollars. Now remember, I just said that the business declined 13 billion, maybe 10 to 11 billion adjusted, you know, relative to the utility index. So even in a worst case scenario of a billion dollars, it's still you know just one tenth of what the stock you know, price declined that that had been been seen by its shareholders um, or borne by its shareholders, and so we felt pretty comfortable um, that the adjusting for our base case fines and and the stock trading back to a market multiple in the next couple of years, again looking down the road, that buying the business at 11 times earnings with a 5% dividend yield was pretty attractive relative to the the utility index that was trading at 19 to 20 times earnings with a with a just a few percent you know dividend yields and so as you got through the scandal we thought the the stock that was trading in the high 20s you know could end up being you know trading someplace in the in you know in the low 40s to low 50s and what's it look like today I mean, the same story still applies. It's still in the midst of this. The stock price has moved up, you know, from the, the high 20s to the higher 30s. And the, the opportunity still exists for that same upside. Nothing's really changed. They're in the, in the process of, of working through the, you know, the, uh, whatever's going to happen regulatorily or with the fines. We just don't know where it stands, you know, today. We're not going to know till we know. Huh. But as we look down the road, we it's going to be settled. Just like I argued before that people would travel again, people would stay in hotels again, and Marriott, you know, would not have a an occupancy that was 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 going to be you know close to zero for a period of time. You're going to end up with a, a more normal environment, you know, for First Energy, you know, you know, in 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 all its markets in Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, et cetera. That's really intriguing. So margin of safety, clearly a key part of your uh, investment approach. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume nothing in 2020 changed that philosophy. So that leads me to the question, what is your takeaway from your experience uh, during the pandemic? What's the lesson that investors should have learned last year? Investors, you know, every time. You know, they should learn this. It's, it's the same lesson, right? Is is thinking what the world looks like down the road, not what it might look like in the next six months, three months, or even a year or two. But what's it like down the road? I mean, if you're buying a business, you should care about it twice: the day you buy it and the day you sell it. So, if you're not going to sell that business for five, ten years, why do you care if the stock goes up or down in the next couple? No doubt about that. Our last question of this segment: I want to throw you a little bit of a curveball. I, I asked you earlier about L.A. I, I was kind of surprised to learn you're a surfer. Tell us a little bit about that hobby. Oh, I've got lots of hobbies. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a jack of many trades and master of none. I'm, uh, I, I, I enjoy. Look, I swam competitively through college. I've always mm-hmm. enjoyed, you know, the water. I enjoy swimming in a pool. Enjoy swimming in the ocean. And, and. Um, I never. I used to lifeguard at the beach as a summer job when I was in college, and 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 learned to surf. And um, as I said, I'm not very good, but it's nothing like just being out there in the water and you know, dolphins swimming around you. It's pretty. It's pretty peaceful, and to you know pick up a wave and and maybe have a dolphin riding it with you, which has happened on just one occasion in my life. But I keep trying to trying to repeat that. Is is a pretty. Uh, you know, beautiful, you know, spiritual experience for me. I find it incredibly peaceful. I spend more time now, you know, um, surfing behind a boat, you know, in, in, on a lake because right. I don't have to compete for waves. And, and that's been, you know, it's just it's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the videos of all the young great whites that like to go surfing with surfers in a very um, non-aggressive way. Apparently it's different when they're larger and older but when they're young, they, they seem to be pretty chill. Some of the videos I've seen on YouTube taken from drones are just astonishing. Oh, yeah, they're, they really are. And, and they are, it's, it's disconcerting. You know, in, in, I'll, I'll compete in, in ocean you know, swim races uh, you know, once or twice a year. And I remember once watching one of those drone videos of a great white kind of underneath the, underneath the, the crowd of swimmers, you know, kind of off the uh, South Bay, you know, Hermosa, Manhattan Beach, in a race, and I'm, I just thought to myself, I'm like, that's, I don't know what I would do myself. <laughs> I 
I just try and push that out of my mind. I don't care if it's a big great white or a small great white berry. A great white is a great white. I'm not going to be real thrilled. See, I'm going to I'm going to push back against you on that. If if the choice is a big great white or a small great white, I'm going to go with the small younger one. They really seem to be. So, by the way, if if people are still listening at this point, go to YouTube, Google this. It's astonishing. They're not like a hundred yards away. They're inches away. They're, it's almost like they're dolphins playing with the swimmers and surfers. It's really amazing to see. But that said, you know, it's a little frightening if you're out there on a regular basis. Uh, Barry, I'm going to go on record as saying that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time determining how big that great white is. <laughs> okay. That, that's fair enough. Let me, um, I know I only have you for a certain amount of time. Let me jump to some of my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests that are not surfing related. And, and start with, tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or even podcast you're listening to. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually listen to to a lot of podcasts, and I don't do a lot of streaming other than with you know more more entertainment related streaming. I tend to when I'm in the gym working out and you know on my stationary bike, I do a lot of cycling. You know, I, I tend to you know throw on a, a documentary and and something that with subtitles and and just kind of you know, and watch it. It could be a, on a host of different topics. I love music, and and, and frequently it ends up being you know, something related related to that. I spend more time, you know, you know, reading, you know, nonfiction, um, and, and try and really, you know, drive a lot of uh, of throughput there to the best of my ability. I say to the best of my ability, some books just end up being a little bit, a little bit denser than others, and I find myself, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, struggling through to to get onto the next book. So we're going to come back to books in a minute, but now I want to ask you, tell us about uh, your mentors who helped shape your career. Well, the the one person who really you know shaped my career I mentioned earlier is is um, James Nathan goes by Jeff and he was my my first boss and he's the one who introduced me to a lot of people you know early on when I was just starting out uh, in my early twenties uh, where I was able to sit down with. Uh, you know his good friend, you know Lee Cooperman, and ask him questions and learn from learn from him, and and have him, you know, be at the Teledyne annual meeting, introduce to Henry Singleton, and have dinner with him afterwards, and talk about his experience investing in Teledyne, you know, uh, back in the day, and that that really was incredibly educational. And then I remember once he he um, had me, you know, we drove down to Laguna Beach to visit a guy who I'd never heard of. I just couldn't Google somebody back then. And, and again, I, I hadn't been in the business that long at this point in time. And I sit down at, at the lobby bar of the Ritz, Ritz Hotel in, in, down in, in Laguna Beach. And there's a guy who shows up with an ascot and what seemed like Paisley pajama bottoms, and it was, it was I'd never seen anybody dressed like that, and it was Sir John Templeton, and I was able to have uh, tea with, um, you, know, you know, Sir John Templeton, and and listen to his, you know, life experiences and talk about investing, and to be thrown into that kind of of world at at a at a very young age is is uh, made me, you know, incredibly, you know, made me recognize I was incredibly fortunate. To say the very least, I want to circle back to something that you uh, mentioned in, in my earlier question, which is you said you tend to listen to music-related or watch music-related um, streaming. You, you want to give us any examples? I mean, I'll, I'll listen, I'm going to listen to, like, even on a podcast, listen to the, something called Song Exploder. I I'll love Song to, Exploder. So good. Yeah, I, listen, I love the, I love the, the etymology of a, of a song. I, I like, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, column that, that really breaks down the, uh, I forgot what the, the title of that column is. It comes the up quickly. Yeah. Um, if, hey. you like, if you like Song Exploder, um, have you played with, it's on YouTube, something called Polyphonic? No, what's that? So it's just a guy who puts videos up discussing sort of the musicology of specific songs and bands and artists, and you you might find it kind of fascinating. If you're at all intrigued by why John Bonham of Zeppelin, instead of tracking the bass player, tracked the lead guitarist and what that did to their music and a whole bunch of other crazy stuff like that. It, oh, I love it, that. 
Oh, then you're going to... That's up my alley. Then I, I I'm just... Also, I'm, in addition to being a frustrated surfer, I'm also a frustrated guitarist. All right, so you're going to get a... You're going to have a huge kick out of this polyphonic on you, on YouTube. So now, let's talk about everybody's favorite question. What are your, some of your favorite books? What are you reading right now? Well, I, I, I mentioned the, you know, sometimes struggling to get through books, and, and the reason... I mentioned this, it's fresh in my mind because uh, sitting on my night table and I'm about three-quarters of the way through it is, is Walter Isenson's book, uh, Gene Editor and Jennifer Doudna. And it's just it's a, it's a little bit dense because you really try and, as I'm really trying to understand, you know, the you – know, I have a whole list of books that are tied to, to you know, you know, the healthcare um, and health tech, uh, med tech, and, and the history of, of, uh, of biotech. And I'm just trying to get a, gain a better understanding of – that is an industry, and uh, so I really enjoy reading nonfiction to try and inform my view of, of the world. So that's one that I'm reading now, but um, it's called a, a Code Breaker. And, uh, but I, I read a lot of these books that, that try and inform my view, and, and it include like The Outsiders by William Thorndike, which is, you know, eight, you know, CEO profiles that include, you know, John Malone, Henry Singleton, Tom Murphy of Cap Cities, Warren Buffett, and it really just, you know, reading about these people, what they, what they've, what they accomplished historically in their businesses, and helps inform a view as I speak to managements today. I, you know, one of my favorite books of, of all time really is Ron Chernow's book, The Warburgs, because it's a, an expansive history of, of finance and of a couple world wars and, and a, a Jewish family that. Uh, you know, made its way from uh, Germany to England to the United States, and, and I find that, you know, incredibly interesting as well. And sometimes you, 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 you read the books, or I read the books, and I kind of, you know, what did I learn? What are my takeaways? And you know, like I read Twilight in the Desert 20 years ago, and, and they had the belief that from reading Matt Simmons' book that that, that we we're going to have a problem with uh, uh, of providing energy to the world with with. Uh, uh, because fossil fuels were were harder to come by as it relates to oil specifically, and you know, like clearly that didn't come to pass. We, you know, a couple of things have happened since, and and so you have to, you know, be willing to to adapt. I mean, we had obviously a big increase in renewables, but you also had the, you know, the oil sands and and, and tight shelf formations that have created a lot more uh, oil out there than than people had expected. Meanwhile, you have also had the rise of uh, you've had we have the rise of. Uh, of electric vehicles and such that that are going to put a crimp in future demand. So look, you have to adapt, in, you know, um, to to changes in the world. I'm spending a lot of time reading about health tech, you know, which includes this at medtech and biotech because I believe that some of the great businesses, you know, and fortunes will be created over the next 20 years. We're going to come out of that. We mapped the human genome 20 years ago, but it was like identifying the the parts to a car. For the last you know couple of decades, we've we've been trying to figure out how those how the, the parts of the car work individually and, and in an integrated fashion. And just now we're really beginning to see some of the fruits of that, and we're going to see a lot more in, in the future. Really, really interesting. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in pursuing a career in asset management? I, I think that I would say the same thing I've, I've related earlier in terms of having that that longer-term view. And whatever you do, whatever decision you, you, you make, uh, make sure that uh, you're making the decisions with a kind of a, a, a five to ten year, you know, or seven to ten year rolling, you know, time frame. It's going to allow you to make better decisions today. It's going to, you know, you're going to be more willing to absorb uh, some of the bumps in the road, you know, today if you understand that, that you're going to be better off in the future, in the future for it. And I would say, in addition, you know, do something you enjoy and make sure you're good at it and work really hard. Um, the the last thing I would probably leave somebody with is 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 um, is do well by doing good. I think that one of the things we realize, you know, today in 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 the world that it's not an uncomplicated place. There's a lot of people who've who've been mistreated, you know, over the years, and we can we can you know try and make the world a little bit better. So if you can do that while you're investing, you know, all the better still. And our final question: What do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew when you were first getting started back in the 1980s? Yeah, I really wish I'd better anticipated the world of disruptive change. 
the, the technological innovation that has taken place has, has upended the economics of so many different industries. And whether it be online retail, you know, which has changed the economics of brick-and-mortar retail, or streaming video content and video on demand, destroying video rental and forever changing movie theaters, um, or single-cell genomics that have developed on the back of, of having mapped the human genome and now creating new therapeutics, you know, outmoding what's been accepted to date, or renewable energy solutions that are gradually displacing fossil fuels. Now, we've, we've successfully avoided most of the disrupted industries, but that's like crowing that, you know, that our boat didn't sink. It's not supposed to sink. We would have enhanced our performance had we been more willing to pay up at least a multiple turn or two to own some of the better businesses in the world whose paradigms are, are more winner-take-all or winner-take-most. So we didn't buy Amazon. We, we thought we were doing pretty good by, by not by selling our retail out you know, more than a decade ago. But we just didn't buy you know, Amazon, even though we'd looked at it. We just didn't look at it closely enough, and that has to solidly go into the mistake bucket. So huh. that's what I wish I knew. 30 years ago. Really quite fascinating. Steve, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Steve Romick. He is the managing partner of First Pacific Advisors, an asset manager running uh, over $26 billion in various assets. If you enjoy this conversation, check out any of our prior 400 such interviews. You can find those wherever you feed your podcast fix, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Latika Valbron is my project manager. Paris Walt is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.